want the Republicans to wake up is... The Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Today's program underwritten by listeners Deborah Newell, Leanne Rayer, David Poulsen, and Christopher Welsh. Thank you for your voluntary contributions. If you'd like to subscribe, our voluntary subscriptions start as low as $5 a month. Just click on the tab that says you can help at PeterBCollins.com. On today's podcast, we get an update on the confirmation hearings of Supreme Court nominee Elena Kagan with some progressive viewpoints from Professor Marjorie Cohn of the Thomas Jefferson School of Law in San Diego. And just before the end of this podcast, Gary Chu will join us with a review of the new film Mother and Child. But first, we want to celebrate the return to science. Yes, during the early part of this decade, politics and religion often blocked scientific advancement. And today we are joined by Dr. Eva L. Feldman. She is the Russell N. DeJong Professor of Neurology and Director of the Neuropathy Center at the University of Michigan. And she is also presiding over clinical trials that we're going to talk about, which offers some uh, hope for people afflicted with Lou Gehrig's disease, or ALS. I met Dr. Feldman when she was in San Francisco a few months ago on an alumni tour. And it's a pleasure to have you on the program, doctor. Well, thank you very much. Now, uh, if you could, give us just a quick background on yourself and how you became interested in particular in stem cell research. Well, one of my uh, positions here at the University of Michigan is to care for patients with uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, also known as uh, ALS. And uh, in my role as a neurologist, I probably treated several thousands of those patients. And as you know, Peter, this is a disease where currently there is no effective treatment. So I became very interested in trying to understand not what only causes this uh, progressive, uh, deadly disease, but also coming up with new therapeutics or treatments. And that led me, actually, uh, uh, five years ago to do a sabbatical at the University of California, San Diego, where I began to investigate the potential use of stem cells in the treatment of uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. And uh, our initial work was extremely promising, and it actually then led us from looking at the treatment of uh, animal models of uh, ALS with stem cells to now doing the first human clinical trial using direct intraspinal transplantation of stem cells in ALS. And that is so exciting, I have to Thank say. You. When, when you made your presentation, uh, it, it really struck me in many ways. First, as I referenced, uh, I was appalled at the way the Bush administration put sharp limits on stem cell research uh, for philosophical and political reasons. And uh, you came to California where we had passed Proposition 71. I was active uh, in, in that campaign. And I did so because the son of a friend of mine uh, uh, was diagnosed with ALS, and he passed away two years ago this July after a five-and-a-half-year battle. And I'm sure many people you talk to have a, a personal story like that. ALS does touch uh, many American families. 
And so to see you uh, really breaking down barriers and making some progress uh, to the state of clinical, tr- clinical trials uh, really means a lot to people like me. Well, thank you. You know, and let me thank you then for working um, for stem cells and for our ability to use stem cells. I firmly believe that stem cells offer a new therapy, a new means for us to treat diseases, particularly neurologic diseases that have otherwise been considered untreatable. And um, it offers a great deal of hope and promise for the future for patients who have ALS. And, Peter, your story's, you know, not uncommon. Most of us have known one or two, and many of us several, of course, individuals who have had this disorder and understand, you know, it's, it's intractable, progressive course. And you can probably also understand how stem cells would potentially be able to halt that progressive course. Indeed. And uh, I don't want to draw you too much into politics, but it's important to note that in Michigan, uh, your voters passed, I believe it's Measure 2, a few years ago. Yes. And, and that took the, uh, the uh, constraints off your abilities to proceed with uh, the research and development. Yes, that's exactly true. Actually, it took a constitutional amendment in the state of Michigan uh, in order for us to be able to do this. It was unable to be passed through the Michigan legislature, so really the people of the state of Michigan together gathered and uh, proposed and passed a constitutional amendment to allow uh, uh, scientists in the state of Michigan to create new human embryonic stem cell lines and use those lines for uh, research and therapeutic purposes. And uh, did that come with any uh, state funding, or is all of your funding for this research uh, coming from other sources? No, it did not come with any state funding um, at this time. So unlike California, Michigan does not have, you know, a Michigan stem cell initiative for money the way you the way California does. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our our funding primarily comes from uh, a philanthropist, uh, Alfred Taubman, who has been very committed to stem cell research and stem cell work. In fact, Mr. Taubman was uh, the major uh, force behind getting our proposal to pass. He would he would be considered maybe similarly to. Uh, to Mr. Klein in the yes. state of California. Bob Klein really uh, drove that, and mm-hmm. he chairs... The way Al Taubman here in Michigan drove that. So frequently, I think, when you have um, a topic such as stem cell research and stem cell therapy, it does take one major advocate uh, in, in the state to help drive it forward. And for us, that was Al Taubman. And uh, just a note, Robert Klein is the uh, current chair of the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, which uh, is what was set up by the ballot measure and receives the uh, proceeds of the $3 billion in bonds that were floated to, uh, to provide the funds for this research. Now, Dr. Feldman, could you take a couple of minutes here, because your presentation in San Francisco was excellent, and just help my listeners who may not have focused on stem cells before understand uh, how this works in, in a, a broad sense, and also, if you could, make the distinction uh, between embryonic stem cells, their value, and uh, other stem cells that are being researched and do have some uh, level of promise. Sure. Well, let me do one thing at a time. So let's start by uh, explaining what an embryonic stem cell is, m- maybe in contrast to an adult stem cell. Okay. So uh, an embryonic stem cell... Um, in when uh, an egg and a sperm meet, and in this case it's in a petri dish because this occurs when individuals go for in vitro fertilization, um, and what is formed then is uh, a two-celled and four-celled and six to eight-celled embryo, very small, what's known as a blastocyst. And when this very when this fusion occurs, one or two cells from this fusion can be taken and can be multiplied, and that is really what an embryonic stem cell line is. Now, in the state of Michigan, as in the state of California, many of these uh, fertilized embryos are implanted in women who wish to become pregnant and result in successful pregnancies. But because too many of these embryos are usually made in the dish uh, or some cannot be used, 
Uh, previously in the state of Michigan, not in the state of California, but in the state of Michigan, they were discarded or thrown away. Mm-hmm. Now, because of our proposal, too, and, and then, of course, of your uh, more liberal laws, or the more liberal laws in California, those embryos that were going to be destroyed can then be used to form these new uh, stem cell, these new embryonic stem cell lines. Mm-hmm. And what's important is that because these lines are formed so very early, when uh, there's only four or five cells in the dish, these cell lines have the potential to become any organ in the body. So these cell line, these cells could become heart, could become muscle, could become brain. In contrast, an adult stem cell is very different. It's usually harvested from an adult tissue, and so it already knows what it wants to be. So, for example, if you take stem cells from, say, the bone marrow, they know that they want to become some type of blood cell. So, you know, an adult stem cell is in that, while it is a stem cell, it only can become a certain select type of cell. It is an adult, unlike an embryonic stem cell that's totally undifferentiated and can become any type of cell. Mm-hmm. Now, the only other piece to maybe just briefly mention, Peter, because people are so interested in this, is currently the technology is rapidly advancing in part because of, again, the California initiative, to take adult skin cells and turn them into embryonic cells. And that, that technology is rapidly advancing, and I think will be on the forefront of stem cell technology and stem cell research and therapeutic trials in three to five years from now. So that's the brief stem cell primer. In our own clinical trial, what we are doing we are taking stem cells and doing a direct injection of these stem cells into the spinal cord of patients with Lou Gehrig's disease. And in the spinal cord of patients with Lou Gehrig's disease, there are these very large nerve cells that become diseased or sick. And that is really then it's the progressive loss of these large nerve cells in the spinal cord that causes the weakness and paralysis that one sees in Lou Gehrig's disease. So we are doing a direct injection of stem cells in the same area of those large nerve cells that are getting sick in Lou Gehrig's disease with the hopes that these stem cells will help rejuvenate uh, the sick nerve cells and will allow them to regain their health and allow them to regain their uh, function. And for a layperson like me, when you inject these embryonic stem cells into the spinal cord of an ALS patient, uh, and, and you say they they do they repair the the damaged cells? Do they uh, squeeze? You know, kind of push them out of the way? Uh, what what's the best way to describe yeah, no, it's what very what good occurs? Question. Let me tell you that the stem cells we're injecting are called neural stem cells. So these are cells, they are not adult stem cells, but these are cells that know they want to become some type of nervous system cell. And what these cells do when we inject them is they surround, it's very interesting, they surround the sick nerve cell in the patient and they attempt to repair that nerve cell, uh, rejuvenate that nerve cell, and indeed that happens so that cells that previously were on the road to death in Lou Gehrig's disease, at least in animal models, are surrounded by these stem cells and are nursed, and I'll say that word in quotes, back to uh, more normal function. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. So they don't go in and replace the nerve cells. Rather, what they do is, uh, is provide uh, an environment or a milieu around the sick cells that allow them to regain their health. And so uh, in the, we'll get to the uh, clinical trials in a moment, but in the testing on animal subjects that occurred prior to the clinical trials, uh, what were the, the patterns of, uh, of the, you know, repair or at least uh, neutralization of the, the sick cells? So uh, what one would see would be preservation of the uh, large nerve cells where in an untreated animal, these nerve cells would be, as I said, on the, on the path to, of destruction and die and not even be able to be seen 
what we would see would be the preservation of these nerve cells to the extent that not only were they preserved, but they would have a healthy appearance. We would also see the preservation of the nerves that come from these large nerve cells. So to take one brief step back, you have these large nerve cells, and from them come these nerves that attach to muscles. And it's this, you know, this nerve-muscle junction that needs to work properly in order for you, for example, to move your arm or leg. And we would see a preservation of the nerve itself and also the connection or the junction between the nerve and muscle. So it was um, actually the results were more promising and uh, more outstanding than we had anticipated. And in the animal studies, Dr. Feldman, uh, did you, well, well, first of all, how do you replicate a- ALS in, in animals? Do they have... Yeah, good question, good <laughs> question. So 10% of ALS is inherited, is a familial form, and there are many genes, actually, not just one, but many genes we now know that can cause what looks like sporadic ALS, ALS where we know there's no family history. But one of these genes, the superoxide dismutase 1, SOD1 gene, this gene was cloned into both mouse and into rat so that we have a rat model and a mouse model of the disease, and it replicates the human disease. It's very, very similar to the human disease. So these are the two animal models that have been used extensively in research to test potential therapies for ALS. Okay. And so, again, in the animal studies, uh, did you see uh, uh, symptoms uh, that were, uh, I guess, stopped? I, I don't expect that you were able to reverse any damage oh, no, that had occurred. No, and we never claim, and I think it's important, you make a very good, very good point. Don't think this is ever going to reverse. This isn't a cure for ALS. We're right. not to completely reverse this disease. Our goal in the human trial is to stop the the relentless progression of the disease, which is what we saw in the uh, rodent trials. Okay. And then finally, on the animal studies, any unintended consequences, any side effects or surprises? No, um, actually, not, not, in the, uh, not in the animal studies. No unintended consequences. We uh, certainly, from the animal studies, learned that we needed to use immunosuppression, Uh, because this is a transplant, just the way like you get a heart transplant or a liver transplant or a pancreas transplant. This is a transplant of stem cells. So we need to use anti-rejection drugs in the animal models, as, and that certainly was a good learning experience for us so that we could apply that to the, our current human clinical trial. So tell us a little bit about the process of getting the U.S. FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, to approve your proposal for a limited clinical trial. Uh, They approved ultimately 18 patients, and you're about midway through that, as I understand it. I'm not midway, 30%. We will enter patient number six in July. I see. Okay. Okay. I wish we were midway. (laughs) We're not. We began, we received approval, and we entered our first patient on January 19th of this year. And uh, we are, um, according to our FDA clinical protocol, are entering one patient per month. Okay. But uh, to, to segue back to your question, uh, in, order to, um, in order to get a, an approved FDA trial, one must uh, fill out, uh, you know, there's a process, which in, includes, of course, an extensive application to, to the Food and Drug Administration, working with them, step-by-step uh, step to fulfill all their requirements and, and meet all of their guidelines, which are extremely reasonable and thoughtful, but also laborious. And so in our particular case, what one does is after you've worked with them and filled out the application and gone and presented it to the FDA, they will then review it and come back to you and either approve it or in our case, and in most cases, come back with a series of changes and suggestions and additional data that they require. And that certainly was our case, that it took multiple submissions to the FDA before they uh, approved our uh, final application. The good news is that they did approve our application. It was approved in the uh, fall of uh, 2009. And as I said, we were able then to then get the next set of approvals, which must occur within our own university systems, the uh, the Institutional Review Board, IRB approvals, to do clinical research. 
then uh, must occur within our own university systems, allowing us then to enter the first patient in January. And the roughly the length of time from when you filed uh, your application with the FDA until this past January, what was that? Um, oh, a couple of years? Or? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I should go back. I could go back to my records. From the first draft, from the very first draft, we wrote to the final, uh, yes, years. Yeah, well, I, I really appreciate uh, the <laughs> the persistence and uh, all the detail that it takes to pull that together. Now, tell us a little bit and about... And also, Peter, I would like to just segue and say that, you know, it probably, this application was more difficult than a standard drug application to the FDA, too, than, say, an oral therapy, because this is a stem cell trial, so, you know new, you know, a new new therapeutic and a new application. No one had either, either had ever done stem cells directly into the spinal cord. So we were dealing with a lot of new things, both us and the FDA. And tell us a little bit about Neural Stem, which is the biotech company that has, uh, I, I guess, developed the uh, injectable that, that you're using. Yeah, they're, they're actually a wonderful uh, small biotech company. The uh, stem cells that we are using were developed by the chief scientific officer at NeuroStem. Uh, his name is Dr. Carl Hohe, J-O-H-E. And he, when he was at the National Institutes of Health, I believe he first made some very sentinel discoveries that eventually led uh, over time to his development of this very interesting neural stem cell line. And he, this is uh, a line, uh, a set of stem cells that neural stem has developed that uh, are currently then being used by us because of their very high therapeutic uh, potential in ALS. Again, these are the stem cells I was telling you about that we used in animal models, Peter, that provided such good neural protection. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they've been a very good, uh, they're very small. I think they're a handful of people, really, very small biotech very passionate about uh, neurological diseases and stem cell therapies. So the uh, procedures themselves are taking place at Emory University in Atlanta. Uh, why that venue and what are the benefits that Emory offers you in these clinical trials? Yes, the benefits Emory offers me is an amazing young surgeon named Dr. Nicholas Bula. So Nick Bulas did his neurosurgery residency here at the University of Michigan and um, I had the pleasure of having him work with me in my laboratory for three years. He's really probably one of the most talented young neurosurgeons uh, in the country. And it was clear to me that I wanted, uh, if I was going to actually take this therapy from an animal model to a patient, that he would be the surgeon that I would want to use. And he is exceptional, as he has proven in the previous five patients that he has done this operation on, but not only has he done it exquisitely, but he has developed a very important uh, spinal stabilizing device that has allowed us to safely inject the stem cells. So not only is he technically very expert, but he's also, you know, he's an excellent scientist. He's a stem cell and gene therapy biologist, but he's also developed, as I said, a, a very special uh, tool that we have used to safely inject the stem cells. So walk us through a procedure at, at Emory, if you would, Dr. Feldman. Of course. Of course. Um, the, um, the clinical uh, neurologist at Emory, Dr. John Glass, interviews the patient and consents the patient along with Dr. Bullis. And after the patient has been carefully examined and has, you know, met the entry criteria for the trial, and Dr. Bullis has explained the operation, then uh, the patient actually then undergoes the operation, the procedure where Dr. Bullis injects stem cells directly in the spinal cord. The first three patients had 250,000 stem cells injected. They had five separate injections of 50,000 stem cells each. The next two patients had half a million stem cells injected, 10 injections of 50,000 each, and that will be what the next patient will also receive. Uh, So that is our outline of the clinical trial. The operation takes between three and four hours, at which time uh, the patient then goes to the recovery, goes to recovery, and then uh, usually uh, just to a monitored bed. 
and then Dr. Bullis sees them postoperatively, and they've, they go home approximately three days, two to three days after the surgery. And uh, how did you determine the ideal sites or the preferred sites? Uh, the spinal cord's pretty long. Uh, is, it, is it closer to uh, the, the neck and brain, or is it closer to the base of the spine? Uh, that, that's, that is a great question. So um, because this is a safety trial, Peter, and what we want to do is do, you know, we want to do graded degrees of risk, and we want to start with the safest possible area, and then as we understand the procedure more and know that it can be done safely, then we will do it in areas that, that maybe have an, a, a larger increased risk. So we started with the lumbar spinal cord. That's the lower part of the cord. And the first three patients, by mandate by the FDA, and we also fully agreed, needed to, uh, were patients that were extremely weak in their legs so that if the stem cells had any untoward effects, the patients themselves would not have perceived any increased weakness. Okay. Okay, and those first three patients are the patients that got a quarter of a million stem cells. The next three patients are equally as weak, so that if there would be any untoward effects of the stem cells, they would not you know, experience that clinically in terms of increased weakness, and those three patients receive half a million stem cells. And then the way the trial will continue, Peter, is that the next three patients actually will not be as weak. They will have function in their legs. They will actually have clear, you know, retained function in their legs. And the next three patients will get a quarter of a million stem cells, 250,000 stem cells. So each time we, we will, you know, increase the risk uh, or uh, potentially or, uh, of the procedure, having shown that the previous procedures were quite safe. And it's early. You've had uh, five uh, procedures so far. Is it too early to see any, any effect? Well, you know, this is a safety trial, not an efficacy trial. So we ha- I can tell you that uh, safety, we have, this appears to be very safe at this point. Uh, and we're very pleased with the safety profile we have seen. We don't talk about efficacy. Um, patients themselves may talk about efficacy, and I know there was a recent segment on CNN where the patient himself discussed you know, potential efficacy, but we are really in this at this point to show that we can safely do this procedure. Okay. Well, I, I certainly understand the, uh, the focus of your study um, I, I know people would be excited to hear even anecdotal information um, about, uh, you know, the, the perception of the patients. And, of course, this is a disease that is very hard to gauge in terms of uh, its progressivity. Correct, correct, yes. It's a, it's a tough disease that requires, I think, aggressive treatment and new therapeutic approaches, and that's what we're after and that's what we're doing. And Dr. Feldman, certainly I know some of my listeners would like to know uh, uh, about what possibility there is to apply uh, for a, a slot uh, in these continuing clinical trials. Have you selected all of the patients uh, for the full 18, or is the process ongoing? The process is ongoing. Um, it is certainly preferable if the patients uh, live or close in the vicinity of Emory University, Atlanta, where the procedure is being done, just because that makes, you know, ease of uh, care, of delivery uh, for the patient. But um, if the patients would like or if any individuals would like to go on the Emory University website, there is a, a spot if they will then Google the ALS clinic and Emory University, there is a spot uh, on that website to uh, acquire information and to acquire whether or in, to inquire whether or not they would be a candidate for the trial. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Feldman, uh, thank you very much for your oh, time today. Well. Is there anything you'd like to add in closing uh, about the uh, research that you're undertaking and uh, where, where it might lead you in the future? Well, I would, I would like, I think, to thank those patients who have participated in this clinical trial to this point and also thank the many patients who have inquired about the clinical trial, because I think it takes a very, very brave person, Peter, to step up and be the very first 
person to undergo a new procedure with a new treatment for this disease. It takes a lot of courage, so I'd like to thank those individuals who have done that and also to let all of your listeners know that uh, this idea of using stem cells as a therapeutic in neurologic disease is new, but I think it's going to continue to grow, and our technology and our ability to do it is improving on a daily basis. Well, thank you, Dr. Feldman, and I'd just like to note in closing uh, from some information that I researched that you have no financial interest uh, in uh, Neuralstem, the company that is developing the uh, uh, the, the pharmaceutical or the injectable stem cells. And, and I just want to mention that because uh, there are many concerns about the intellectual property rights developing from this type of research. And while I don't uh, choose to demonize anyone in the medical profession who has profited from the work that they've done, I would like to single you out for uh, appreciation here uh, that you're doing this for all the right motives. Well, thank you. Yes, I have absolutely no financial interest. Dr. Feldman, keep doing what you're doing, and I hope to talk to you again in the future. Okay, thank you so much, Peter. You're welcome. Dr. Eva Feldman at the University of Michigan. Bonjour, this is Veronique Raskin. I am the CEO of the Organic Wine Company, and I want to personally invite you to join the Peter B. Monthly Organic Wine Club. Call me for the details, and I do answer my phone, at 1-888-ECO-WINE, or visit us at www.theorganicwinecompany.com. À bientôt, j'espère. Merci. Hear ye! Hear ye! The coat's in session. The coat's in session now. Here come the judge. Here come the judge. Here come the judge! The United States Senate is going through a process... The confirmation of Supreme Court nominee Elena Kagan. And the nominee once described the process as vapid. And, of course, she has been forced to conform to the procedures, the process, the protocol. And as senators posture and lay down commentary in the record... She bobs and weaves and avoids taking any explicit positions because, of course, uh, these issues may come before her, expecting that she will be confirmed as the next justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. So on one hand, it's a fairly empty process. On the other, it's one of the most significant processes that we have because Supreme Court justices serve for life. Elena Kagan is a mere 50 years old. And uh, she presumably will be on the court for many years to come. For commentary, we turn to Professor Marjorie Cohn from the Thomas Jefferson School of Law in San Diego, former president of the National Lawyers Guild, the author of Cowboy Republic and other books, and a frequent contributor to our program. Professor, welcome back. My pleasure, Peter B. We're speaking during a break here on uh, Wednesday, June 30th, in the Senate Proceedings. And uh, it's been interesting so far. I have to say there have been more laughs uh, in this confirmation process than I've seen in in the last few. Um, What is your take on uh, the overall process? And has anybody put uh, markers out that could prevent the confirmation of Elena Kagan? Well, I think it's the same charade that we've seen in the last several Supreme Court confirmation hearings Sotomayor, Roberts, and Alito. She doesn't answer most questions saying that those issues could come before her or that she's, um, she's still representing a client as Solicitor General. I don't think that her nomination will, will fail. Um, I think that there are some Republicans who will vote against her, but she will certainly come out of this committee with a, with a positive recommendation and then go to the Senate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I look at here, Professor, is the missed opportunity of President Obama. He had, this is his second uh, uh, nominee to the court. You never know when these will come. Uh, People try to guess based on the age or uh, inclinations of justices, but that's a very imprecise process. And we have to consider that this could be the last nomination that Barack Obama gets to the court. He might not win re-election. And uh, there may be no more openings between now and the end of his first term. 
And so I'm very disappointed that uh, he didn't take the opportunity to appoint a full-throated liberal and to accept that uh, it might have been a messy confirmation process. But absent a real disqualification of the nominee, uh, the president generally prevails uh, in, in this whole process. So are, are you disappointed, as I am, that uh, we're getting such a, a centrist and a, uh, a pro-executive, pro-corporate nominee? I am disappointed, and I would have liked a full-throated liberal. I think that he will likely have another nominee with uh, Justice Ginsburg. I, 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 that's a guess on my part. Um, but there's no reason to believe that he will pick a full-throated liberal at that time either. Um, I don't know that she's pro-corporate. Uh, I, I don't have evidence of that. But she certainly favors very, very broad, in my view, too broad, um, executive power. And there were some, th- some, some insights about her views that actually did emerge, especially with her questioning um, from uh, Lindsey Graham and Dianne Feinstein. Um, she told Lindsey Graham, we're at war with al-Qaeda and the Taliban, and the president has wide power under the authorization for the use of military force to hold enemy combatants until the end of hostilities, which is probably going to be forever, because this war on terror will go on forever. Um, if you read the authorization for the use of military force, which Congress gave to President Bush on September 18, 2001, it gives the president the authorization to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determined planned, authorized, committed, or aided the 9-11 attacks or harbored such organizations or persons. And so the authorization for the use of military force is much narrower than Kagan is, uh, is, is saying here. It's a very narrow category. And... She also told Senator Feinstein that this authorization for the use of military force, um, uh, that, excuse me, that the Obama administration defines enemy, enemy belligerent under this authorization for the use of military force as someone who um, is part of or substantially supports al-Qaeda or the Taliban. Uh, and, she, and she said that that was approved in the Hamdi case. Well, that's just not the case. Um, in the Hamdi case, the Supreme Court limited the definition of enemy combatant to someone who had been picked up on the battlefield in Afghanistan, not just some, any, any uh, member of al-Qaeda or, or the Taliban anywhere in the world. And she had told, Kagan had told Lindsey Graham during her Solicitor General confirmation hearing that the whole world is a battlefield and that, that includes um, the, somebody picked up in the Philippines. So uh, she also said that she uh, is, it favors the military commissions. She did express that opinion. It was one of the ones that she did express. Mm-hmm. And you'll recall that after he was inaugurated, President Obama said he was going to shut down the military commissions. Military commissions provide a reduced standard of due process, and they can actually judge people guilty and execute them based on uh, standards that we would not allow in our civilian or even military law. Hearsay, evidence derived from torture. Well, not anymore, although evidence derived uh, from coercion before a certain time would be admissible. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but there is a case pending now. Uh, under the Obama administration in the military commissions, and that's the case of Omar Cotter, who's a Canadian citizen who was 15 at the time he was brought to Guantanamo and was accused, stands accused, of uh, killing an American soldier with a hand grenade, even though there's a lot of evidence that he did not throw that hand grenade. And, in fact, if you look at, at pictures of him, um, he, he, he was shot in the back. Um, so, so that is very disturbing to me that she she dances around most questions, but when it comes to these these issues of executive power, um, she takes a much much broader view than uh, I think many people would take. And there was a, re- a virtual love fest going on between her and Lindsey Graham. He just adores her, and it's because of these really really right wing views that she holds on executive power. 
And, and Professor, it, it really seems that this dance is to establish that she is conservative enough to pass muster with the Kyle Sessions uh, right wing of the Judiciary Committee. That's true, because she knows that she's going to get all the Democratic votes. I'm not sure if she's going to get Specter's vote, but Specter's kind of schizophrenic. He doesn't know whether he needs to continue to behave like a Democrat since he lost the election. Yeah. Um, so she, she knows that she has the Democratic votes locked up. Um, I think one of the best questions came from Senator Durbin, also a... Um, a Democrat who said uh, said that she, when she argued that this authorization for the military force allowed the detention of someone who gave substantial support to the Taliban, that that might be inconsistent with our treaty obligations. And he's absolutely right. Nobody else really mentioned treaties. We've ratified two treaties, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the Geneva Conventions. and uh, and And they're very clear that you can't hold somebody um, who just just for giving some support uh, indefinitely without trial. Um, And I think we've said on this show as well that when the United States ratifies a treaty, it becomes part of U.S. law under the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution. So it's not just international law. It also becomes U.S. law. And uh, she didn't really respond to that. I'm not sure uh, if she knows what treaties we've ratified. None of the senators have asked her that. Most of the Democrats have asked softball questions, and uh, none of them will vote against her. Mm -hmm. And there's really no representation from the left. Uh, Senator Feingold is a a good man, uh, but I listened to his questioning of the uh, nominee uh, yesterday, on on Tuesday, and I, I was disappointed that he didn't really raise uh, what I consider to be cr- critical issues, uh, you know, regarding the interests of, of the political left, and that uh, she essentially is taking on what I call Obama's left lawn, uh, the, the Teflon that, that prevents anything coming from the left from sticking. And uh, it just, it, it really does seem to be a one-sided process here, and that those of us who have reservations about this nominee, because she's not liberal enough, are essentially just uh, uh, shunted aside. Well, I think you're right. Uh, I did notice, though, that um, Senator Cardin made some, I think, very good comments. He's a Democrat from Maryland. Um, he criticized the Robert Court's affirmative action decision as violating Brown versus Board of Education. He's concerned about violations of the Voting Rights Act. He says the Supreme Court has weakened environmental protections. Um, he says, how do we make sure every American gets a fair shake? talked about um, 30 sta- in 30 states people can be fired for their sexual orientation with no legal recourse. Um, and he said he wants a justice who will protect individuals against government abuses. Um, he didn't really ask questions on too many of these things, but he made good statements. He did raise uh, one case, mentioned it, um, but didn't mention Kagan's role in it, which I think was is, is disturbing. Um, and that's the case. He, I think that he was talking about Justice Marshall, uh, and because some of the Republicans had been trying to tar Kagan with Marshall's reputation, basically linking them and saying, well, since she clerked for Marshall, she'll be just like Marshall. Yeah. Unfortunately, that will not be the case. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Cardin mentioned a case where a poor family, the Supreme Court held that a poor family had to pay a fee for busing their child to the nearest school 16 miles away. And Justice Marshall dissented in that case, and he asked Elena Kagan, who was his law clerk, to draft a strong dissent for him, and she had real trouble doing it. He had to send it back several times to her. Um, and, uh, and Senator Cardin didn't mention that. And, of course, none of the Democrats have really pressed her hard on most of the issues. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, focal points has been gun laws, the recent Heller decision, and last week's uh, decision uh, regarding Chicago's ban on handguns. And she has taken the position that this is settled law. And, and this is, again, part of the dance. Just as we, uh, uh, before we started our conversation, uh, Senator Specter, to his credit, uh, raised his conversation with uh, Justice Roberts in the Roberts confirmation process. Uh, and says that in the Citizens United case that Roberts uh, essentially just uh, uh, repudiated the commentary that he had offered at his confirmation. 
And I, I think it shows the, the charade aspect of this process. And uh, it, it seems that she's dancing along saying, well, that's settled law. And uh, it's also, I, I can't recall who exactly pointed it out, but Justice Sotomayor, uh, I think this was Jeff Sessions, actually, who said this earlier today. Uh, Sotomayor uh, uh, joined the dissenters in the Chicago case after having said that Heller, uh, the Washington, D.C. case about gun laws, was settled law. Yes, I mean, it's settled law until they unsettle it. (laughs) Sure, it's settled law, and that means that lower courts have to follow it, but it doesn't mean that the Supreme Court can't reverse itself, and they often do, um, given time and given different personnel on the court. So I think you're right. This is a certain, this is a charade. And I remember senators, some of the Democratic senators, maybe Feingold, if I'm I'm not mistaken even, um, telling Justice Roberts, "I, I believe you when you say that you're going to be independent and you don't have an agenda, and you seem very to have a lot of integrity. And of course, Roberts has uh, almost 100 percent walked walked in lockstep with the radical right, and he has succeeded in moving the court to the right. Mm-hmm. Indeed, starting with Citizens United and ending with the McDonald case on uh, on the Second Amendment. And this also is linked to a whole uh, commentary back and forth about what constitutes judicial activism. And it's stunning when you hear these conservative Republicans try to repudiate that the Roberts Court is activist, and yet they are asking this nominee to assure them that she won't be an activist, uh, which, of course, is code for you won't be a liberal activist. Exactly. I mean, activism is in the eyes of the beholder. There's no greater example of judicial activism than Bush versus Gore, where a <laughs> yeah. five-member majority of the Supreme Court told Florida they couldn't keep counting their votes and uh, handed the election to George W. Bush. And certainly the Citizens United case was a, a stellar um, example of judicial activism. But uh, it's, it's really almost a meaningless phrase at this point. Mm-hmm. And anything significant for you in all the commentary about Kagan's role uh, at Harvard relating to access by military recruiters? I think it's a tempest in a teapot, and it's about the only thing that the Republicans can use to uh, to criticize her. Um, she she did she did she never stopped giving military recruiters access to the campus. She just gave them access to a different part of the campus. And, uh, and in fact, military recruiting of Harvard students went up during her tenure at Harvard. So uh, I don't think it's, I think it's a tempest in a teapot. I think Jeff Sessions is, uh, you know, he, he's the one beating this horse. Uh, but I really don't think it's going to have any significant effect on her confirmation. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's hard for a layperson like me to parse is the true uh, meaning or the, the true interpretation of her role as Solicitor General and whether the positions she has taken reflect her views in any manner. Because, for example, I've been troubled by her uh, uh, gratuitous role in the Don Siegelman appeals. Siegelman's the former Alabama governor, and I've uh, talked with him many times and covered his case in great detail, Professor. In a quick summary for people who may be hearing about him for the first time, he was a sitting governor. He ran for re-election. The results flipped overnight. Uh, It appears that election was stolen. He was then indicted. The first round uh, charges were dismissed. He was re-indicted, and the indictment came from uh, Laura Canary, who was the U.S. attorney there in Alabama, the wife of Bill Canary, who was a political operator and a partner of Karl Rove. And uh, many people, myself included, believe this was a highly political prosecution. And we were expecting relief from a Democratic uh, administration, both at Justice and in the Solicitor General's office. And she weighed in on his appeals uh, and was actually asking the court to uh, resentence him to a longer sentence, which I found breathtaking. Now, he has received some relief, and we're hoping to talk to the governor in the coming days because of a Supreme Court decision last week on the honest services uh, uh, law. But um, her role with Siegelman I found very troubling, and again, it's hard to determine 
uh, whether she was following orders in filing those briefs or acting purely on her own. Well, that's a good point. I don't know in particular about that case, but I do want to mention an example of that where I think she was following her own opinion and a very disturbing position she she took as Solicitor General. She argued against giving habeas corpus rights to Bagram detainees, Mm -hmm. and she told um, Lindsey Graham that she signed the brief in that case, which is very rare that the Solicitor General actually signs the brief herself. Usually her underlings sign it. But she said she signed the brief in that case because the U.S. interests were so important. Now, in Boumediene versus Bush, the Supreme Court held that the detainees at Guantanamo have a constitutional right to access to U.S. courts to hear their habeas corpus petitions, to hear them say, to hear them try to prove that they're innocent, that they were picked up by mistake, that they have no connection with terrorism. And the majority in Boumediene said that even though Cuba retains technical sovereignty over Guantanamo, that the United States exercises complete jurisdiction and control over the naval base with the prison there. And the Supreme Court rejected, quote, the necessary implication of President Bush's position that the political branches could govern without legal restraint by locating a U.S. military base in a country that retained formal sovereignty over the area, unquote. Well, Notwithstanding the Boumediene decision, um, Kagan argued that U.S. federal courts don't have jurisdiction to release detainees at Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan on habeas corpus petitions, even though the U.S. exercises control over Bagram just as it does in uh, over Guantanamo. And so it disturbs me that she is taking a position that goes against Boumediene um, in in this case, and denying the Afghan prisoners, prisoners in Afghanistan, the right to habeas corpus. Now, um, Obama said he would close Guantanamo, and of course he hasn't done that. Congress is using it as a political football and won't appropriate the money. But so, but he has not been sending detainees to Guantanamo anymore. Where is he sending them? Probably to Bagram, yes. where they have no rights. So that's very disturbing to me. And, and it's hard to, uh, I don't understand the origins of that, uh, at least in, you know, what I've learned about her past and her, her attitudes, her, you know, her legal bearing. Uh, and it, it really does seem to be a, a, a frightening extension of the bad law and precedent set under the, uh, the Bush administration. And, in fact, the Obama administration is, is following many of the policies of the Bush administration in the so-called war on terror, and she's right in the middle of it. And because she feels so strongly about it, evidently, uh, I'm, I'm very wary about what she would do on the court. Justice Stevens has been a leading voice in those cases where the Supreme Court has, in fact, he's written the opinion or assigned the majority opinion in, I think, all of them. And he... Uh, he, he has taken a very strong position that the executive is not unbridled during wartime. And I think that she will not take that same position. First of all, she'll recuse herself from some of these cases that she was involved with. But the ones she does sit on, I'm not at all confident that she will take the position that Justice Stevens took, which will, of course, necessarily move the court even further to the right. Now, uh, Ms. Kagan is seen as a uh, proponent of the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, the uh, half-assed uh, ban on gays in the military. At the same time, she has a public position in opposition to marriage equality. And I find that hard to reconcile because if you find that uh, gays and lesbians should be able to serve openly in the military... It really strikes me that it's the same fundamental right to uh, uh, equal treatment under the law that uh, would apply to marriage rights. Well, yes. I mean, she she hasn't said she's against same-sex marriage, but she says it's not grounded in the Constitution, which I guess is a position against same-sex marriage ultimately, uh, because that's that is and that issue will likely come before the Supreme Court. 
Um, it is disturbing. Uh, I agree, and I think it's inconsistent with her opposition to don't ask, don't tell. Although, you know, there are other reasons to oppose don't ask, don't tell um, besides being, uh, besides thinking it's discriminatory, and that is because and a practical reason, um, if you're so inclined, is that uh, we need more soldiers in the military. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so you're actually excluding a large sec- a segment of, of people who could be fighting in the military. We have all these wars that Obama is uh, prosecuting, and we need more soldiers. And the experts have said there, is no, uh, there are no morale problems or other problems associated with the don't ask, don't tell policy, and it will likely be repealed um, with, by the end of the year, is my understanding. Professor, as we sum up here, what's your take overall? And uh, we, we don't have any real expectation that... Uh, she will be denied confirmation. But based on what you've heard so far in these hearings, what kind of a justice will Elena Kagan be? You know, I really don't think we know. She has such a thin record. Not only hasn't she been a judge, which shouldn't disqualify her, of course, but she's hardly practiced law. Um, she, I don't think she had set foot in a courtroom before she became Solicitor General a few months ago. And she also has a very thin record of legal scholarship as an academic. So we really don't know. We're, we're, we're going to take potluck here. Um, there are many Democrats and liberals who say, well, we're going to trust Obama. You know, he appointed her, and so she'll probably be fine. Um, I don't feel comfortable taking that on faith. I just don't know what kind of a justice she'll be. Only time will tell. Thank you very much, Professor Marjorie Cohn from the Thomas Jefferson School of Law in San Diego. Great to talk with you again. Thank you so much. Be sure to tell your friends about the Peter B. Collins Show. Spread the word and help grow our audience. Send them to iTunes or PeterBCollins.com. We're in the middle of a long, hot summer. And I don't know about you, but I've been having a hard time finding movies I want to see. Yeah, Shrek and Toy Story, but uh, sequels don't do that much for me. Our official film reviewer, Gary Chu, found a good one. gets too hot, grab some popcorn, head into the air-conditioned theater, and maybe you want to check out Mother and Child. Here's Gary Chu's review. In the new film called Mother and Child, there is great longing for connecting with a child by a mother who gave up her daughter for adoption at birth. There's also the barren young wife who is frantic to adopt a child. The other is a single professional woman who had her fallopian tubes tied when she was 17, mostly because her mother dumped her at birth, too. That's Elizabeth, played by Naomi Watts, an independent attorney who has a life without attachment except when she wants it, and that's usually with an anxiously attracted guy whom she handily manipulates and treats like dirt. Carrie Washington plays Lucy, a married woman unable to conceive. Her need to have and raise a child approaches the pathological. Lucy and her husband, good guy that he is, walk a social treadmill to adopt, while being advised by Lucy's forceful mother, played by S. Epatha Merkerson. Annette Benning, playing the role of Karen, is at the threshold of spinsterhood, caring for her infirm mother, Nora, played by Eileen Ryan, who is Sean Penn's real-life mother. Karen has no real connection with her mom. It's Karen who gave up her daughter for adoption. Karen was 14 at the time, as was the father. Karen, Lucy, and Elizabeth are overtly confident, negative, and pushy as hell. No parental love or real connection sure does make a gal seem insensitive and more than just testy. The written voice of each woman seems to come from the same place or person. That would be a man, Rodrigo Garcia. He directed Mother and Child. Senor Garcia is the son of the Colombian Nobel Prize winner, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who wrote 100 Years of Solitude and Love in the Time of Cholera. 
The men in the lives of these troubled women are Paco, played by Jimmy Smits, who is attracted to Karen. Joseph, played by David Ramsey, is married to Lucy. And Paul, played by Samuel L. Jackson, Elizabeth's law firm boss, who finally becomes her lover. A love scene between Watts and Jackson, though not physically specific, is a very realistic and compelling moment in Mother and Child. Steamy, true, but more than just passionate. The film is rated R. A curiosity to this mix of characters is that only one couple is of the same race, Lucy and Joseph, who are African-American. But like many contemporary films, racial differences play no part in the struggles and conflicts portrayed. It's a grown-up, adult film. For those who look at such social diversity as no big deal, it makes the film mature. Another striking thing about Mother and Child caused me to flash back on three other films of recent years that I would call significant. Two of them winning Best Picture Oscars, their American Beauty and Crash. The other is the 2006 film Babel. It may be coincidental that Babel was directed by Mother and Child's executive producer, Alejandro González Iñárritu. Mother and Child is sequential with its three discrete threads. It's obvious the threads will converge as the film moves on. What's interesting is that some parts of the conclusion are not telegraphed and may tend to cause a jaw or two to drop in the theater. Kudos should be signaled for Naomi Watts, Annette Benning, and especially Samuel L. Jackson. I can't remember seeing him do a role like this. He's really quite an actor, and we've seen him doing just about everything, even movies that put snakes on planes. Mother and Child is restrained, not dull, not slow. Edward Shearmer's music is appropriate and economical. It has some of the same harmonic sense you hear in Thomas Newman's film scores. Garcia does seem to rush the movie, though, as he brings it to a close. That makes Mother and Child lose some of its clear communication and almost languid yet inexorable pace toward the apparent changes to evolve in the principal characters. What as I am to ride herd on a film to its last frame, I was able to hear another new song and voice during the credit close, both humming afterwards in my head for several hours. The song is called Little One. It was written and sung by a young Los Angeles woman named Lucy Schwartz. Miss Schwartz looks to be about 20 years old, but the way she writes songs and lyrics, then sings them, tells me her soul must be going on at least a thousand. Her song is another strategy Garcia puts in Mother and Child to remind us there's still tenderness in the world. And for that, we should thank him. I'd be inclined to thank you should you read some of my online reviews at TulsaTVMemories.com or under External Reviews at the International Movie Database, www.imdb.com. I'm Gary Chu. Thank you, Gary. And Gary recommends this new song that he says plays over the credits. And that happens a lot in movies now. Great tunes, but they save them for the end of the film as the credits are rolling. This one Gary likes uh, by Lucy Schwartz. It's called Little One. Little one, little love, little hands, look how they hold the world. Oh, stay a while, little smile, little eyes, soon they will know the world. But there's no rushing, getting older, no use in wishing to be young. Live every part of it, you're at the heart of it, little Where'd you go, one so small, look at the way you've grown Oh, dress up dolls, playing house, those days are gone Now you've got a house of your own And there's no rushing, getting older, no use in wishing to be young Of every part of it, you're at the heart of it, little one, little one. Oh, 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 oh. oh. oh, 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 oh. 
Thanks for listening to this edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Your feedback is welcome. Email me, Peter, at PeterBCollins.com. Happy trails. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails.